0: I genuinely believe uh, that I'm a car whisperer. and I feel the next gold rush will be in the next few years' time when we're going to start to see this emergence of hydrogen battery-powered cars. It's the only way you can power our future.
1: Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Smart Cars and Najahi Events. More about those great organizations later. Today's episode of the podcast is all about people that might just like something most of us use every single day, and that's cars. My next guest is a TV presenter and motoring enthusiast, best known for his work on wheeler dealers, deals on wheels, and... (laughs) His world of cars. He grew up surrounded by cars so it was natural he entered the motor trade as a teenager and quickly built up a reputation as being sharp and honest. Despite hosting the world's most watched car show he hasn't forgotten his car trader roots and owns two motor dealerships and is constantly saving classic cars by adding them to his growing collection. With a lifetime dedicated to the automotive industry, there's not much that he doesn't know about cars. So I'm thrilled to have him here to share his expertise and predictions for the industry. Cue the music. Mike Brewer! <laughs> Well, ladies and gentlemen, to have this guy on the show today, someone I've been watching on telly after living in 10 different countries around the world over the course of the last 20-odd years, he's always been there, cheeky smile, okay, with a a TV show. We all like cars. And I've got today the amazing Mike Brewer on the show. So, Mike, thanks for coming to join us, mate.
0: Uh, Spencer, I appreciate you having me on. I really do.
1: You know what? You, You literally have been someone that's been a stalwart of television for me over so many years because I've lived in, from the Far East to Africa to South America, and there was always, always tough to find you know, good TV shows to watch. You, know, you either have it dubbed over in some languages, but your TV show, Wheeler Dealers, for me was something I could always find, I could always enjoy, and this was before the internet was around, and, uh, and you've just always been in my living room. So first of all, thanks for that, and thanks for always you know, bringing it to me with a smile.
0: Uh, Well, yeah, Wheeler Dealers plays out, I think there's uh, 217 television territories around the world. uh, And Wheeler Dealers plays in 211 of those territories to over 200 million people around the world. And that's on a daily basis. Uh, And it's got something to do with the fact it's been on TV for nearly 20 years now. So there's a a vast back catalogue. And it's kind of an easy show for Uh, television networks to pick up and to play because they're individual shows they're formatted shows they don't have to follow suit you don't have to have you know like a a drama series you can just pick a series up and and throw it out there so uh yeah i got uh i i get inundated with people from far-flung places you know afghanistan uruguay paraguay uh japan china uh, new zealand it doesn't matter uh, Greenland, even Antarctic Circle, believe it or not. And uh, I, I even had the Taliban watching me in the caves. Uh, they told me that. So, yeah, I've I've had, you know, my show has been out everywhere, all over the world. Uh, and it's great. It's great that we've got such a vast audience and people love cars globally. Simple as that.
1: Yeah, they do, you know, and you've been through many, many cars over the years. But I want to basically just pick up from from where this all began from you and your interest in cars. Because I know your dad was into cars, but kind of most dads are into cars, aren't they? You know, my dad's mad about Land Rovers, anything to do with Land Rovers. He's tinkering away in his garage with his bits and pieces. And so, you know, I, I'm an engineer, son. I'm like, well, no, you just mess around with Land Rovers, dad. And if, and if I ever go in there or if I ever introduce anyone to my dad and he takes them into the barn out the back, they're gone for a couple of hours. So there's, no matter what it is, and I remember buying my first car when I passed my test, my dad took me into a car showroom, and the car salesman was talking to me, and so I lifted the bonnet up. I think it was a Ford Fiesta or Fit Panda or something. I lifted the bonnet up, and I was looking at the, in, at the engine, and my dad had gone over to another part of the showroom, and he wandered back across to me, and he's like, what, what are you doing? I'm, like, I'm just looking at the engine, dad. He's like, so where do you change the oil? I was like, I don't know. He's like, shut the bonnet and he walked away and it was kind of like my 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 learning experience into doing that and uh you know he was was always about cars but tell me what kind of a relationship you had with your dad when you were young and did you did you spend a lot of time doing stuff together or was he like a uh, you know an authoritarian kind of distant dad tell just tell me a bit about that
0: Uh, no unfortunately I've got the, the coolest dad in the world he really is like Super cool. He's amazing. And uh, growing up, I really had no choice, Spencer. It was one of those. Uh, you, you, you if you're born into a car loving family, or particularly my dad, you know, was the car lover in the family. I'm the baby of six. Um, it, 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 back then, there was no internet. There was no games consoles. There was no, uh, you know, it was either your, your parents are going to give you a hoop and a stick and send you out the street and say go and entertain yourself for five hours. Or I could sit in the garage with my dad and pass him tools He'd pass them back. I'd wipe them with an oily rag and put them back in the toolbox. Um, and I liked spending time with my dad. It was as simple as that. I loved spending time with him. And he, he spoke to me like an adult from a very early age, from the age of eight. He treated me like a like a buddy, like a, a mate, like a friend. Uh, so during those summer holidays, uh, when all the other kids uh playing you know knock down ginger or tin tan tommy i wasn't i was in the garage with my dad because uh, he had a garage that was his business and uh, i couldn't wait i used to spring out of bed in the morning uh put me little wave rules on or whatever i could find and go and sit on the workshop floor with me dad as he's laying underneath cars passing him tools and uh slowly but surely it manifested into well, why don't you ever go at undoing that nut, and why don't you take those spark plugs out, and uh, let's take this gearbox home and uh, do some work on the gearbox at home on the kitchen, literally on the kitchen table. Um, my dad was a, a customizer, so he was an airbrush artist, uh, an incredible airbrush artist, in fact. So uh, I was used to sort of car parts coming home, and we'd mask off a part of a bedroom. And my dad would be airbrushing so uh you know car parts were always in the house there was at the workshop i sort of just ended up around them and i had really no choice uh, at other weekends as well when it wasn't in the workshop uh it was at a car show and i could say rather reluctantly i was maybe dragged around maybe too many car shows uh, to go and see cars or to spend evenings doing car cruises and, you know, as, a, as an eight, ten-year-old kid, maybe I wanted to be on my skateboard with my mates. Uh, and my dad said, well, you can't, son. You've got to come with me, you know, and, and we're going to go to the Chelsea Cruise or we're going to go to this, uh, this car show at the weekend. And maybe I was reluctantly, I didn't have a choice. I had to be dragged along. Uh, but what I learned in those years, I didn't know what I'd learned. I'd sort of ingested this stuff into my brain uh, from a very early age, and, and it manifested itself by the time I got to 16 and 17 years of age, I realized I, I knew an immense amount about cars, about how they worked, how to repair them, what they were worth, how to spot a good one, how to spot a bad one, why that car was leaking, what that noise was as that car drove by. I sort of just understood cars. And uh, and then by the time I was 17, I bought and sold my first car, made a 500 pound profit in a, in a, a flip, And I thought to myself, well, my parents don't earn five hundred pound a month. I've just earned five hundred quid in one trade. I think I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, and that's it.
1: Wow. And so, did you then go and become a car salesman at a car showroom? Did you work on some forecourt somewhere, or did you just do it independently?
0: No, independently to begin with. So, at the age of, uh, I left school at sixteen. And I went to work in the print business. Uh, my dad was also, at that time, uh, he had a car garage, but he also did a, a delivery driving for a record company, the printed record sleeves. Uh, they were based in Wandsworth, South London. And uh, I used to, uh, in the summer holidays again, if it wasn't in the garage or, uh, uh, you know, when my dad was doing a bit of overtime in the evenings, he'd pick me up from school and I'd sit the transit van beside him and change gear for him, you know, as we was bombing through London, dropping off, to Decca Records, you know, record sleeves. And um, when I left school, I got offered a job at Decca Records printing uh, record sleeves on a four-colour printer. It was amazing uh, to work on this big four-colour printer. Here's a little thing about me you you might think is a bit Baron Munchausen, but it's absolutely true. (laughs) I I printed, uh, I printed, me... Dark Side of the Moon. I printed that album, uh, Pink Floyd's album, Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, So uh, I had this, yeah, it's amazing. I I had this incredible time at San printing, printing record sleeves, Um, but it was all a means to an end. I needed the money. I just wanted money. And uh, I was saving uh, from from there. I was also then working in the market stalls at uh, Covent Garden Market in the evenings, helping them pack up their market stalls, get a bit of cash in hand at the weekend. I'll be at Sutton Market or I'll be at uh, Bedford Market, uh, helping them set up their stalls and pack them up in the evening uh, and drawing a fiver here, a tenner there, wherever. And, uh, you know, for me, I I contributed to the family at that age. I was giving my mum £25 a week at the age of 16. Uh, But I I was saving £40, £50 a week for myself. Uh, And that enabled me to buy that first car, that first flip. And then once I've done my first flip uh, and I thought to myself, this is what I want to do forever, uh, I decided to, to sort of more concentrate. I was still working in the print business. I started to work at IPC uh, magazines then, um, working in Motor Magazine, funny enough, being a postboy for, for Motor Magazine. And uh, uh, so that was good. I was sort of now surrounded by new car information and car reviews, uh, which was really good for me. But at the same time, I'm earning money to enable me to buy my next car. And uh, you know, when I bought my next car again, I fixed it up and sold it for a profit. But by the time I got to 18, it was inevitable where I was going. Uh, And I got headhunted by somebody who had a a, a fleet of garages in South London. Uh, He actually met me in the snooker hall. And he said to me, you're probably the the most amazing salesman I've ever met. Uh, Have you ever sold any cars? I said, well, funny enough, I do. And he said, come and work for me. Uh, so I walked into this big car showroom in Tooting, South London, Jaguars and Granadas and, uh, you know, Mark 5 Cortinas, all these cars I sort of desired. And, uh, and he said to me, how much do you earn a month? And I said, at the minute, I'm probably earning about £800 a month. I was earning more than anybody else I knew at that time. And he said to me, um, I'll, give you, I'll match that. I'll give you £200 every week. And I said, great. And he said... And I'll give you hundred pound for every car you sell. And I said, "When do I start?" He said, "Start Monday. that was a Saturday. He said, "Start Monday." and on Thursday, I sold 11 cars. So at the end of that first wow. week he was he was peeling off 13 he actually peeled off uh, I saw 1,300 pounds and then he put an extra hundred in and he said, "Treat yourself, you've done amazing your first week." Uh, so my first week in the car trade. 1400 pounds which was two months wages you know in in, in a week and uh, and it blew me away and I just then threw myself I just learned everything I could about the motor trade, finance, uh, about uh, you know the best way to get somebody into a car that suited them, um about how the market was moving what was what was selling what was not selling and i just concentrated on that and uh i'm still doing it that was that was back then i was 19 and here i am 59 almost and i'm still doing exactly the same thing all those years later 40 years later
1: What an amazing story. It's clearly you have a passion for it. Now, car salesmen traditionally don't always have a great reputation, but you're probably the most trusted car salesman in the world, aren't you?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's good that you brought that up because one of the very first things when somebody says to you, we're going to give you a TV show about buying and selling cars, uh, you have to look back and go, oh, well, is there going to be any skeletons in my cupboard? Is anyone going to come out and say... I sold him a dodgy car, or, or, or something like that, and <laughs> and pulled a rug from under my feet. Um, unfortunately, it never happens. You know, it. I've never done that. I've never been that kind of uh, car dealer. Uh, and the car trade back then, uh, it could have been a shady business. You know, it was. There were people in the business that I I mixed with, and I was around, and I see some dodgy things back there. But I just never got tempted to go down that path. I always used to to say to my salesman, just do it Do it right, do the job right, do it perfectly, do it well, don't cheat, uh, don't lie, don't scamper, just do the job right, and it will work. It will work if you just do it correctly. Only buy the right cars, sell them to the right people for the right price, and, and it will work. And uh, that's what we concentrated on, and my business flourished uh, through that. And uh, I built up such a great reputation in the in around the London area, that uh, actually, when TV started knocking on the door of car dealers around London, saying we're putting a car show together back in 1997, um, most car dealers were saying, you need to talk to Mike Brewer. That's who you need to talk to. And that was lovely to hear that. You know, when the production company found me, uh, they said, funny enough, you've been recommended by half a dozen car dealers in London. Uh, they all say you're talking to the wrong person. You need to talk to Mike Brewer." He's the real car dealer, and it was so nice to to hear that from my peers, you know, back then. Um, but I, I I got dragged into television. very reluctantly. I got dragged into it. I didn't go looking for it. It sort of just happened. Um, but yes, when it, when it did happen, I had to think, wow, you know, is anyone going to come out and say that I I did something wrong? But fortunately, I've been a, a nice guy on the way up, so hopefully, on my way down, nobody kicked me in the shins. That's the right
1: thing to do. So <clears throat> before we go on to the television work, just tell tell me how big the business got to before you got into telly. Did you have a, uh, one <clears throat> one showroom, more than one? You know, what kind of turnover revenue or how many cars were you selling every month? Tell me a bit about that.
0: Yeah, it was quite exciting back then. I was doing some really weird and odd things, uh, things that were completely left field and outside the box from what other uh, normal car dealers from South London were doing or or anywhere in London for that matter. Um, during that period of time, I helped set up for somebody else. I got, uh, I went back to work, uh, with the people that originally, that guy that found me in the snuggle, Peter, he asked me to, he, he left the train for a while, then he came back and I, I was, I was, uh, working on my own, then at my own car dealership, uh, but he came back and he, he said, I want to create the biggest four by four center, uh, in the Southeast. And I said, okay, he said, but I want you to do it. I'm going to fund you to do it. So in Wandsworth, South London, uh, we built a site on an old petrol station called Gulliver's. And we, uh, we set up this big 4x4 centre at a time when 4x4s weren't really what people were looking for. You know, people didn't want a Mitsubishi Shogun or a Suzuki Vitara or a Land Rover Defender in London. They didn't. They were the country set cars. Uh, but we could s- smell there was a little gap in that market. Uh, you know, where the Guy Ritchie market, people that wanted a flat cap and wallet and boots but lived in the city. Uh, so we could smell that gap in the market and we chased it. And uh, when we were chasing that market and filling up the forecourt with these cars and, and selling them very, very well, uh, we were struggling to find stock, especially, um, you know, the cars that we were selling, Mitsubishi Shoguns and Vitaras. So I did something really odd. I just said to my boss, well, I'll get on a plane and go to Japan. I'll do a deal with Suzuki. Uh, so I, I did. And then I flew uh, to Cyprus after that and started to do a deal with separate car dealers to bring in Mitsubishi Pajeros, which were badged as shogun in the UK. Uh, so I sort of built up this, this knowledge that you can buy cars from elsewhere in the world and bring them back to a UK market and uh, sell them and make money out of them. So that happened for a period of time. Uh, then, unfortunately, my, my then girlfriend, but now wife of 33 years, uh, she got very, very sick. Uh, she got septicemia and uh, got rushed into hospital. And I took time off of work to hold her hand, to nurse her, effectively, thought we thought we was nursing her to her death. Um, and during that period of time, Black Wednesday happened, interest rates went to 15%, the car trade bombed, uh, and I didn't care. I just was holding the hand of my... My girlfriend at the time, Michelle, thinking, I, I, you know, we had a house, we had furniture, we had a car. Uh, and I just didn't care for any of that. I just wanted to hold her hands. And, and I did that for nearly three months while she was in hospital. Uh, and eventually Michelle recovered. But by the time she came out of hospital and it was time to go back to work, there was no work. It had gone. You know, the business had collapsed. His business had collapsed. So I then started again. By trading, by moving cars around the country, buying cars in South East London car auctions at Wimbledon and moving them up to Leeds and putting them in the auctions at Leeds. Uh, Buying cars in Leeds uh, and bringing them down south and selling them in uh, Paddock Wood car auctions. I was moving cars around the country and uh, doing very well at doing that. Just moving geographically. It still works today. You can move cars around geographically and make money out of them. Uh, so I started to do that and it was very successful. And then during that period of time, I built up a network of more trade contacts because I'm selling these cars. i in the trade. Um, they would be offering me cars to move to other people. And that's when I decided to, to get a, another showroom again and go back for a showroom uh, kind of uh, front of house for me. Uh, Michelle come to work with me. Uh, we had a share of a dealership in, in uh, Wimbledon in South London. Uh, and uh, we concentrated on a certain genre of cars, uh, hot hatches and uh, GTI cars, and that business went fantastically. It went so well, uh, and we did it right. Like I said before, you know, we bought the right cars at the right prices, found the right customers for them. Never cheated. Never did anything wrong. Uh, you know, we did it correctly, and uh, we had a, a wonderful reputation and a wonderful business. And uh, it was during that period of time uh, when those cars started to dry up and they started to become hard to find. Uh, so I decided to do what I'd done years earlier. I jumped on an aeroplane and I flew to Europe. And I then started to buy BMW M3s, uh, Lancer Delta Integrales, uh, BMW Z1s, Fiat Bar Chetters. I bought cars that were only manufactured as a left-hand drive. So there was no right-hand drive alternative. So people had no choice. If you wanted one, there was only a left-hand drive version of that car available on the market. And uh, I smashed it. it we had two years of raining cash. It was amazing uh, because if people wanted an M three E thirty M three or they wanted a Fiat Marchetta, there was only one person in England that was selling them, and that was that was me. And uh, I had. Wait, hold on. What
1: year? What year was that? This
0: would be nineteen ninety six, ninety
1: seven. Okay, because I got into buying left-hand drive cars myself around that time because I was working in Europe, and so I would be living in the UK, but I'd be driving to Europe during the week. And so I needed a left hand drive car. And I had a BMW M3 from the only place I could find it. Was it the exchange in Ma or whatever it was? I might have yeah. even bought a car from
0: you. You have bought it from me. You, I guarantee you would have bought it from me because nobody else was selling them. It was just me. I was walking in, it's going to sound really odd for people out there, but I was literally walking into Fiat car dealerships in Germany uh, where a Brand fire new, Fiat Barchetta was 8,050 Deutschmarks. That's what they were. And I was walking into car showrooms in the whole north of, north of Germany, asking them, how many Fiat Barchettas new have you got to sell? Well, we've got four in stock. Okay, I'll have them. I beg your pardon? Yeah, I'll have them, all four. Can you get them registered? I'll have them. I'll wait in the showroom while you get them BDI. Uh, sorry, sir. No, you're winding us up. No, I'm not. I will have all four cars. I'll wait here until you get all cars PDI'd and I will buy them. Get me a coffee. I'll sit here. Uh, sorry, sir. You want to buy how many? Four. And I've just bought four down the road and I'm going to leave here this afternoon, go to that other Fiat dealer in Munster and I'm going to buy four of him as well. I I just went round Germany like a lunatic buying brand new Fiat Barchettas. I had a team of friends driving a pack <laughs> Uh, when this brand new thing happens called the Channel Tunnel, bloody amazing, yeah. I had this team of mates <laughs> driving these cars back. I was giving them 100 quid a pop to drive the cars back. Uh, I was getting them registered in the UK, turning the headlights upside down uh, so the beam pattern worked, getting them MOT, getting them registered in the UK and uh, selling them out my dealership for, at that time, 12,000 pounds. So I was going from 8,050 plus the expenses to turn them around for 12 grand. And I would only ever was, have... But hold
1: on, Mike. Was, who, who was buying them?
0: Everyone. Just everyone that wanted a Fiat Marchetta. Remember, there was no MX-5 at the time. This is pre. This predates the MX-5. There was no MX-5 at the time. The MX-5 was like a year later or 1999. Uh, this is 97, 98. So if you wanted a two-door little open-top sports car that was reliable, fun. That looked, funny enough, if you look at them today, they are a little MX-5. Uh, it was like an MX-5. Um That was your choice. Pay me £12,000, you get one. Simple as that. And I, I couldn't stop selling them. I was selling them like peas. It was brilliant. But that market run out, that whole left-hand drive market run out because more and more people cottoned on to what I was doing and uh, more and more dealers across South London or North uh, London start to do the same thing. Uh, so uh, it all happened around that time, where I get this odd phone call from a lady at Channel 4, uh, from a production company working with Channel 4, called Celia Taylor, who um, asked if I was Mike Brewer, because she wanted to come down and see me about a TV
1: show. And so you get this phone call from this lady, you're busy, you know, enjoying the car industry as in as in every industry, you have your ups and downs, you know, some good, good times. And sometimes times are a bit tougher. This lady phones you up. Did you think it was a wind up? Did you think, you know, did you think of yourself as someone that could do something on TV? What did you think?
0: No, no, I had no desire. I didn't even watch TV back then. I was working all the time. Uh, I didn't even know what it was, uh, but this lady rung up whilst my colleague was in the toilet having a poo. Uh, and he was desperate because he had a carry the night before. And I picked up his phone. <laughs> this, uh, this lady said I'm ringing, I'm ringing about I'm ringing about the Golf and I said "Yep." Yeah, which one she said the GTI which wasn't mine it was my colleagues who was having the poo and I said yeah no worries it's black it's a 16 valve big bumper model power steering um, it's got the, the Golf Match interior it's got this it's you know green metallic and she went wow sounds amazing you really know your stuff about cars don't you And I said, yeah, of course I do. This is my job. She went, you're not Mike Brewer by any chance, are you? I said, yeah, why? She said, my name's Celia Taylor. I'm ringing from Ideal World Production Company. We're making a show for Channel 4. I'd like to come down and talk to you. And I said, not really. I don't know. I don't want to be a car dealer. You know, I don't want you filming me doing what I do. This is what I do. And she said, no, nah, I'd like to come down and see you. Can I come down tomorrow? And I said, no, nah, I'm busy tomorrow. Don't, don't bother. Anyway, uh, Michelle, my, my wife, worked with me every day. And I, I said to her that evening, I had a weird phone call from a lady on the telly. wants to come down and film me. And Michelle said, oh, you'll be good at that. You'll be really good at that. And I said, I don't want to do it. It's the last thing, the last thing I want people on TV thinking I'm some sort of dodgy car dealer. We've built a reputation. We've got a great business. Uh, I don't want people thinking that. Uh, but anyway, lo and behold, the next day, even though I said no, Celia turned up with a handheld camera and she pleaded with me to talk around the car. So it was a Peugeot 205 1.9 GTI. And she said, please walk around the car, do a lap in the car, tell me about it. So I did, reluctantly, just sort of get rid of her. And then uh, it was a few days after that, she, she phoned me up and said, I've showed that to my bosses and they think you're amazing and um, would like you to come in for an official screen test. And I just said, no, you've got no chance. It's not my world. I said, it's just, I'm just not interested. Uh, she, and then she outlined what they were doing. She said, well, look, we're doing a show called Deals on Wheels where we're we're taking people that are selling cars and we're looking at the person that's buying the car And basically, we want a car dealer to um, show the tricks of the trade, you know, how you can get the best out of a car. And I said, you've got the wrong guy. I'm just not interested. I'm seriously not interested. However, I can advise you, if you're doing this show, feel free to lean on me for advice on what cars you should be doing, what you should be looking for, the kind of person you should be selling it to. Feel free to do that. Uh, Oh, really? I said, yeah, feel free. So over the next... Six months, I had uh, people from this production company just phone me every now and then and say, Austin Maestro, thoughts. And I go, rubbish, don't touch it. You know, hello, Mike, uh, BMW 2002, fantastic. Make sure it's a two-door. Make sure it's got this. Uh, the price you're looking for is this. The price you're selling it for is that. So that happened for six months. I just give free advice. After that was over, I... Uh, I, it was about probably a month later, and I was actually moving my sister into a new house, moving the furniture for my sister, and uh, I was in the van with my uh, with Michelle, and uh, the phone rang, and it was Celia, and I said, uh, she had to remind me who she was, i have forgotten her. She went, hello Mike, it's Celia, Celia who? Celia from Channel 4. Sorry, I don't remember you. She went, you know, the girl that came down and videoed you? I went, oh, right. She said, thanks for all your help over the last few months. It's been really good. We've made the show. And I said, oh, great. Oh, congratulations. She went, however, now we're thinking that what we'd like to do is to put a presenter in the show to link the stories together. So you're not revealing any tricks of the trade. You're just being an authentic car dealer linking the stories we'd really like you to be that person. And I said, well, not really. You know, I'm busy. And she said, can you just come along for a screen test? Please come along for a screen test. Uh, After a few more phone calls, I I went to this East London car dealer uh, dealership that they'd hired for the day. And they put in it a, it's quite funny, actually. They put an MGB midget, sorry, an MG midget, and a Nissan Bluebird side by side, and this cameraman on a big television camera—first time I'd ever seen one—and this whole production team. He went. He was Scottish, and he went. He make. Tell me everything you need to know about an MG midget. Bad Scottish accent, oh no, I know. I apologise to our Scots. <laughs> and he said, "Tell me everything you need to know about an MG midget." And I said, uh, "Okay, if you're going to go and buy an MG midget." the easiest thing for you to do is to have the person you're buying the car from in the passenger seat. If you want to get the price down, just go to a car wash. And by the time you've gone through that car wash, you'll be buying the car for a bargain price because it will leak. It will leak (laughs) everywhere. Um, And they laughed their head off at that. And then they said, what about the Nissan Bluebird? And uh, I'd previously watched another guy that was screen testing for the role, very famous guy at the time called Quinton Wilson. And ah. he, spoke, he spoke a load of nonsense around this Nissan Bluebird. They'd find his car built in Sunderland by wonderful people, handles like that is his tea trolley. And uh, he'd done this <laughs> little show. And I just stood there. And, and he's in his suit and tie and jacket. And I've turned up in a T-shirt and jeans. And uh, I thought, well, what do I say about this Nissan Bluebird? So the, the cameraman said, what do you know about Nissan Bluebird? And I just stared at the car. Stared back at the camera and said, when you fall out of a nightclub, two o'clock in the morning, absolutely hanging. This is what you want to see. You want to see one of these with an aerial in a plastic bag on the boot lid because that's going to be the best taxi to get you home at night. And everyone started to laugh again. I said, just look for the puddles of sick on the back seat. And everyone laughed. And by the time that was over, by, by the time that was over, uh, Celia Taylor and uh, Hamish Barber uh, just said, the show's yours. You've got this show. It's yours. You have to do it. it. You're just so good. And I said, okay, tell me the deal. And it was, you ready? The Good Days of Television. We'll give you £200, £200 per show, and it's six shows, and we need you for a week. So I said, oh, okay, just send me, uh, send me the address and where you want me to turn up. I'll take a week. I'll get my salesman running around for a week at the dealership and um, I'll come along. So I turned up at this uh, mock car show in Catford um, and that's when I started to make a little weenie TV show on Channel 4 called Deals and Wheels. And when it aired, it went out in 1997 and by the time it got to week three of being on TV... It became Channel 4's highest rated factual program in their history. And by week four, I had a phone call from a guy called John Bentley from BBC's Top Gear. And he said, we need you to come and join us on Top Gear. And that was the beginning of my career. That was how it started.
1: Wow, what a story.
0: (laughs) I'm
1: really. never going to get that bit. Guy sitting there having a poo. Should have picked up the phone himself. Brilliant. When you did that that, that first week, though, of that um, that that being in that that mock showroom
0: in in Catford,
1: did you get a buzz from doing it? Was it was it was it a good crack?
0: It was. I, I, funny enough, you know, so at that first week, somebody literally, uh, you know, because they they just assume that I'm a TV presenter. The crew, the, the, you know, when you turn up, they think, oh, he, he's the it's presenter. So he's the professional. Bear in mind, I've never done anything before. And then somebody hands you that, you know, that many words, and they go, "Yeah, there you go, Mike. Uh, if you take that, um, learn it, and just say it into that camera." And you're standing there going, "Jesus Christ! So you want me to learn? I never did. I never did a play at school or anything like that." So I'm like, "You want me to learn all this?" And and I've got to say it. Okay, Mike, I'm <laughs> ready for you. Come on, action! <laughs> And I'll be honest with you. I was a frightened rabbit between two headlamps. I just didn't know what was going on, what was expected of me. But I looked at their script and I paraphrased what they had in their script. And I brew it's what we call brewerizing. I brewerized everything that was there. And I thought it what they had written, in my opinion, with the greatest respect to those people, was nonsense. It weren't. It weren't relevant to to what I was looking at or, or what I was standing in front of. If I was standing in front of an E-Type Jaguar uh, and they're telling me to say something about, you know, Jaguar's history and uh, Malcolm Lyons and all these great things, um, I didn't think some of that stuff was relevant, but I thought some other fun stuff was, like, you know, Enzo Ferrari said it was the sexiest car in the world. And, you know, I said things like uh, whoever designed this car, in fact, there was a guy called Malcolm Sayer. I know that. I said, whoever designed this car must have had the hottest girlfriend on the planet because you don't draw this unless you're staring at something amazing. And it was those kind of things that I threw in the script that made the show. And uh, by the time I got through the first couple of days and I'm starting to get pats on the back from the lighting guy and from the camera guy and from the sound recordist and a member of the production team saying, Bloody! Oh, we're onto something here. You, this is this is going to be big. This show is going to be big. And by the time you start to go through that, um, you, you start to think, well, yeah, I've, I've sort of got this, you know, and I can do this. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, it was just that one thing. I was going. I'm doing this. I have still got my car showroom. Still got my wife. Still got my salesman. I'm doing this one thing. I'm going back to work. You know, I'm I'm back in the car dealership next week, and I'm back down the auctions uh, next week. Uh, and I was, you know, that's exactly what happened. I did the show. Uh, it got edited. You know, it's in the editing process for the next six weeks. And why it's in the edit, I'm back in the dealership and I'm back working again and forgot about it. And then it appears on TV. And then when it appears on TV, uh, week one, week two, week three, it just starts blowing up week after week after week. And then I've got press on my door and I've got uh, people wanting to view me and I've got fit- people like Dave Lee, Travers, asking me to be on a radio show, Dave Lee <laughs> Travis, Harry Cornflake. Well, to be honest, Brad, <laughs> and uh, and then, you know, by week, uh, I know, it's incredible. And then, you know, by the... By you know the, what's the, funny I, about
1: this? I'm sitting listening to this and all these people I know and remember, I'm 52 this year, so I'm not too far behind you. And that's, uh, some of the people have be like, there's somebody called Dave Lee Travis.
0: <laughs> yeah, Harry Cornflake. And uh, you know you got yeah. Anne Diamond on GMTV asking for an interview, and, yeah. and I'm like, "Wow, this is this is kind of crazy." You know, this is kind of crazy. Anyway, all this stuff happened, but I was still uh, buying, selling cars with Michelle in the showroom, and we kept that going. We kept we kept the the, the car showroom stuff going, and then TV happened, and then what happened is TV just done this, and it overtook my life. And uh, I had no choice but to let the car showrooms go. By the time we got into the second series of Deals on Wheels, uh, the car showroom, I couldn't do two because the show had grown by then. Um, And they wanted me me to do various other shows as well, a show called Driven, uh, a a show about disability. And they wanted me to do some generic TV programs. Uh, So fundamentally, I was pulled in that direction. But, you know... On the side, I couldn't stop buying and selling cars and and I never had stopped buying and selling cars. Um, And it wasn't until, that was 97. And then I did a show on Channel 4 called Driven, uh, which was from 99 to 2002. And then uh, in 2002, I got approached by a tiny little company that had only been on air for five years and uh, they had an idea for a car show that was based on an item that I did. Um, and it was uh, a, little, a little, a little, company called discovery channel, they'd only been running for five years and uh, they used to filming gorillas up mountains. But for some reason they wanted a car show. They loved me. And they asked me to um, take one piece. It was a piece that I did on deals and wheels. I showed you how to buy a car, fix it up and sell it. On deals and Wheels, and they said, can we expand that into a show, that one item, can we make a whole half-hour program out of that, and I said, yeah, of course we can, uh, and we sat together with two other guys, Michael and Dan, and we formulated uh, what become uh, Wheeler Dealers, and, uh, and then Wheeler Dealers went out on screen in 2003, and uh, here we are, 2022, <laughs> 19 years later, and I'm still making it, the same show, it's Nuts, it is nuts.
1: Number one, Smartcast, which is a company that is focused on food security. We're going to have a problem because there's not enough crops being grown to feed the growing population over the course of the next 20 or 30 years. We're going to get a problem where if we don't have enough food, we're not going to be able to feed people. Just think about that. And Smartcast have developed technology, smart farming technology, to really be at the forefront and solving that problem. On top of that, we partner now with Arabian Business, which is a Middle Eastern publication, a great website, leading information, market data, business data, entrepreneurship data, and getting involved with uh, with Arabian Business and coming together. That synergy has been really important for our podcast and our business. And you'll be able to get great content from uh, Arabian Business as well. And all you've got to do is go to their website. You can subscribe, I think. It doesn't cost much. It's pennies every month. and take the benefit of that. And then the wonderful Najahi, who have been our longest standing partner and sponsor. Answer. the work they do bring in motivational speakers here to the middle east has been nothing short of exceptional over those years and i'm so grateful to be able to work with them too do you still have the same passion for it today
0: i i genuinely uh i'm a producer these days of, of wheeler dealers as well and i've been for a while i genuinely uh, leap out of bed every morning and think to myself oh, i'm the luckiest guy in the world and i'm gonna go and work with incredible people uh, and i 'm going to do an incredible thing and we 're going to bring so much fun and entertainment to people all over the world and Somebody stupidly is paying me for it um so yeah i i i'm so passionate about my craft about what we do about the show uh ask anyone and uh, it 's my life i don 't know anything else and uh, i i absolutely how don't, many, so how many never... how many
1: how many months a day how many months a year or how many weeks a year do you spend filming fifty
0: Five
1: zero. Wow! If has anyone ever been to you and said, "Look, I really want a XYZ Z one two three. Could you find one? I'll be the buyer and come and buy it because that's what I'm really looking for anyway." Is that is, does that ever happen, or is it completely innocent each time?
0: Uh, no, that always happens. People are pleading with me to go and buy my car and sell it to them, but that's not what the show is. The show it's not a made to order show. Um, i I built up over the years, I built up lists of cars that I need to do, you know, that are iconic. They can tell a story, they're celebrating an anniversary. They were the first of a kind. You know, these cars need to tell a story. Some of these cars drop off the list and other cars join the list. And it happens on a weekly basis. And uh, when I'm putting together the shows... I'm always searching for what's relevant now in the marketplace. You know, uh, I'll give you an idea. This year is the 60th anniversary of the MGB. So Wheeler Dealers has to do an MGB this year to celebrate that 60th anniversary. And then an MGB is going to have inherent problems with a 60-year-old car. There will be things that are inherent with that, whether it's the lower subframe always rots out or the floors fall out or... Uh, you know, it's impossible to get the uh, the rear beam, uh, rear axle, those kind of things. So I will concentrate the show on those features of that car so other people out there who've got a 60-year-old MGB can relate to it and know what to look for when they go and buy one. Uh, and that is fundamentally wheeler dealers. So if, if somebody in the wings has said to me at the same time, Mike, I really want an MGB, I've got his number, when I've got it ready for sale... I've got somebody who wants to buy it. But nine times out of ten, they just go out there for general sale. And uh, it's very, very difficult to make shows to order for people because it's about managing people's expectations. People tend to think, oh, I'm going to buy a TV car done by Wheeler Deal. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to get it for a bargain price. And uh, that's not necessarily true. you know. It's uh, So it's about managing those expectations. But no, it, the, the show is real. And that's the bit that sometimes you know especially on social media uh, apparently i sell cars to my um, to my production team and crew which means that i must have over 350 people working for me um but no I, uh no you know i genuinely buy a car really really do genuinely buy a car i genuinely give it to elvis and he genuinely fixes it up with real genuine parts and then we really really do genuinely sell it to a random member of of the public. And uh, there's not one bit about it that's fake. It's all real.
1: That's fantastic to hear. I, I'm, I'm glad of that. Take, take me, take me on the journey of some of these cars, because some of them must've been easier than others to fix. Some of them must've been howlers along the way thinking to myself, what have I gone and bought here? I thought I was a good car, buyer, you know, Just give me, give me an idea of a couple of the howlers that you had along the way. I'll tell
0: you the, the, the best, the best descriptive I can give you, of any any kind of how cars behave, let me tell you how cars behave. I genuinely believe uh, that I'm a car whisperer. I genuinely believe that. I feel that I have a. I I don't know anything else. If you ask me to put a shelf up, I'm useless. If you ask me to you know program a computer, I can't I can't do it. But if you ask me to build you a car, I'll do it me sleep right. I genuinely know cars. And I know how cars behave and I know how they think and how they are treated. And when I get behind the wheel of a car, within minutes, I can have a conversation with that car and it can talk to me, it can tell me what's wrong with it. It can tell me uh, how it's been mistreated in the past or how it's been lavished in the past. It, it can tell me a whole load of things just by the simple tactile feeling of me being behind the wheel and driving it. And then there's cars that... When you get them, you bring them into the workshop. And Elvis can tell you this, or, or Ant, or even Ed can tell you this from the past. Car- cars that come in the workshop, they, they have two choices. They're either going to come into the workshop, and they are going to be desperate to be restored. They are ready for it. So they're going to come in, and they're going to go, here I am, go at me, please. Every nut and bolt's going to come off. Every single washer's going to fall off. Every single gasket's going to willingly part itself uh, from the metal. Uh, the seats are going to rent themselves. You know, the, the car will fall apart in front of you because it's desperate to be restored. They're brilliant, those cars. We love them. That's the car that I'm always searching for. However, there are cars that I will bring into the workshop that will put a pair of gloves on and now go 10 rounds of you. And they won't give in. They will break every nut and bolt. They will snap every single clasp and fastener. As you pull a seat out, you'll rip it or rip the headliner. As you go to touch something on the dashboard, the dashboard will break somewhere else. They are the cars that don't want to be restored. They'll, they don't. They, they will fight you every inch of the way. They want to become soup cans. They want to go back to the earth. And uh, they are the, that's the dichotomy of a car uh, restorer. You have two kinds of cars, ones that, ones that want it and ones that don't. And it's my job to find the cars that do. But every now and then, I do manage to find the ones that don't.
1: Oh, man. And 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 at the average time it takes for you to restore cars, obviously, we see in the show, it doesn't take long at all. But how long does it take on average? Is it a two-week, a four-week? What or is it? How big's the job?
0: So this is another incredible thing about the world of wheeler dealers and uh, how ridiculous my work schedule is and Elvis's work schedule is and and this team that I work with and it's not me and Elvis we work with a fantastic bunch of people I mean they are every single one of them are so dedicated to the cause it's unbelievable you know how we turn these shows around Uh, because Wheeler Dealers has got a budget it's got a set time that you can make each show in because that's dictated to by the amount of money we've got to pay people Uh, And we only have 14 days to restore a car. And when I say that to people, that we can restore a car in 14 days, and you're telling that to somebody who's had a car in their garage for the past 10 years, and they've not got to the paint stage yet, uh, they think you're making it up, but we're not. We do it in 14 days. That's not 14 straight days. That can be three days at the beginning where the fabrication's taking place, then it goes off. Uh, for two days to get painted and then a week later it'll come back and it'll have another two days of light uh, you know uh, putting some uh, suspension or wheels back on it then it'll go off and get uh, you know uh, the interior put in it that's another day then it comes back and it'll have the engine put in it and uh, so it's 14 days broken down over a six-week period but we only get 14 days per car uh, to restore I know it's crazy. I was going to
1: ask you, it is. I was going to ask you what what, what your favourite cars were that you've restored, but I won't ask that because I think a a great reflection of your favourite cars will be in your collection. So, what cars are in your collection?
0: Uh, I'm a bit of a Porsche nut, so I love a a Porsche. Um, There's something about having. There's something weird about having a car that shouldn't work and it works so blooming well, your brain can't help but fall in love with it. And it's an early 9-11. If you think about it, you've got nearly half a tonne hang out over the rear axle uh, and you put your petrol in the front. And, you know, if your petrol tank gets empty, the car gets lighter at the front. If you fill up your tank, it gets heavier at the front. Fundamentally, that car should be crap. It shouldn't work at all. But they do. They're engineered to such a level. They just work fantastic. Look, I've got Porsche on my top. Uh, they, they they work just brilliantly. So I have a collection of 911s with my wife, Michelle. We've got uh, anything from a uh, 1952 550 spider, a very early car like like this one on my T-shirt. Uh, we've got a uh, 1968 911T, uh, which is a hot rod car worth, uh, worth a lot of money. Uh, we've got a, a 1975 flat nose, wide-body Targa. We've got a 1974 912V, which is incredible. It's a four-cylinder version of a 911. Uh, We've got a 1982 911 SC that's now a hot rod. Uh, We've got a Porsche 928. Uh, We've got a brand-new Porsche Taycan, the electric car. Uh, So we've got one of those as well. And um, we've got an MGA, 1959 MGA, which is a wonderful thing, a 1964 Mini Cooper S, which is my dream car, uh, which is a nut and bolt restoration. Absolutely love that. And um, uh, there's a few others tucked away in sheds and garages that you know might not be worth talking about.
1: Okay, let's um, let's before we go on to what, what future projects that are coming up, let's just talk about them. Um... Two things I wanna talk about. First of all, I wanna talk about the current car industry. We've obviously seen this evolution with uh, electric cars becoming the norm. And I'm sure you're asked about this a lot and Elon Musk becoming mega successful and building a business um, which a lot of people on the surface of it can't comprehend how Tesla can become bigger than Ford and General Motors and stuff like that. Um, but I'm sure you have some, some understanding as to why that has happened. But you know, are we gonna get to flying cars really? Because, you know, any flying car that I'm seeing at the moment, one of the biggest issues is noise pollution um, because of how loud they're going to have to be. I was talking to a guy called Peter Diamandis, who's a a futurist, and he was talking about them taking place in L.A. and San Francisco. Um, So so where where are we going with this? You know, a a good example, um, I've got a friend of mine that lives in Peterborough. He flew from Heathrow the other day to Dubai to meet me, and he's got um, the Polaris electric car. And he's bought it, loves it to bits, thinks it's great. You know, like everyone, great acceleration. But he had to stop on the way from Peterborough to Heathrow because it was cold in the UK and his battery went flat and he had to recharge en route. Uh, where are we going with this? Is it going to happen? Uh, is it, is it, is it going to be, is electric going to take over everything? Is something else going to step in and replace electricity? You know, is it hydropower or whatever? What do you see happening?
0: Okay, first and foremost, flying cars never going to happen. Right, that's never. Forget that notion. That's a futuristic notion of, of some uh, idea that's out there that fundamentally is never going to happen. We will have uh, electric drones, uh, so there'll be no fossil fueled electric cars flying around. But we will have, in the future, electric-powered or battery-powered drones in the air, very much like the the model drones you see today. Uh, but they will be taking people around. In fact. Uh, there's pilot schemes already running in certain parts of the world, uh, including China. I think Dubai and Germany uh, will be having schemes very, very soon where uh, autonomous drones uh, will fly down, pick you up like an Uber, uh, fly you off, you know, and uh, get you to your destination. That that will happen. That will be a future we can get used to. Um, in terms of uh, electric power where we are at the moment, um We have been given guidelines by our government to say that they're gonna stop the sale of fossil fuel cars uh, in our showroom by 2030 and hybrid cars by 2035. So you're talking it's only eight years in the future, uh, we won't be able to buy a fossil fuel car in your car showroom. So therefore we all have to have an electric car or be thinking about electric by that date. But for that to happen, We would need at least, for the amount of electric cars that will be sold, uh, we would need at least 3 million charging points for electric around the UK. And that's a fact. Uh, We need 3 million. That means from today to 2030, we need to be putting in 742 charging points every single day, seven days a week, to meet that deadline of 3 million charging points by 2030. Currently, we put in about 38 to 42 charging points every day. So there is a massive deficit. It's reckoned that if we were to electrify this country and get us ready for the 2030 switchover, it will be a civil engineering project on the scale of which the world has never seen. It will be 50 times the size of HS2. It will, it will be a... A fundamental shift change in the whole way that we use our roads and our networks. Um, there will be roads being dug up all across this country to put the right amount of cabling in, to put the right amount of bays in and charging bays for that mission to ever simply work. So, my guess, and this is just my opinion, the next government or the government thereafter will push that and they will slide it. And that new deadline will be 2035, 2040. And then the government after will be 2040, 2045. That's my guess, because we simply aren't ready for it. And just in the practical sense, if you live in a block of flats that's got 70 flats in it, and there's enough car parking downstairs, 30 cars, how's that going to work? How are you going to charge cars? It's not going to work. And you'll end up in a situation where you make mate with the Polarises. You're driving to work with half a tank rather than a full tank on a cold day and your battery's going to deplete, and there's going to be people turning up in fossil-fueled vans with a fossil fuel generator charging your electric car. So it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. However, sense. The, the march towards electrification is here. We're doing it. We're on our way. Elon Musk is a massive part of that, and you're right, it's a bit incredible that Elon Musk's uh, car company that only sells 100,000 cars a year is worth more than Toyota that would sell a million cars a year. Uh, but that's because Elon Musk has got the grasp on future technology that the companies like Toyota and Ford don't have. So I feel that in the future that will change. And I feel the next gold rush will be in 2035, 2025, in the next few years' time, when we're going to start to see this emergence of hydrogen battery powered cars. It's the only way you can power our future. And hydrogen will be the next gold rush for manufacturers uh, because it's the one un- untapped source that they're not, they haven't been exploring in great volumes. Uh, this, r- this march towards electrification was driven by governments all over the world and they asked for it, but now electric power is costing a huge amount, energy prices, arising all the time so they now need to find an alternative because the deadline is not going to be met by 2030 so the alternative can't be fossil fueled because that's a dirty word and we shouldn't be using that so they're going to have to start thinking about either growing fuel so we'll start to talk about more uh, eco fuels that we can grow in fields or they're going to have to start thinking about hydrogen and hydrogen coupled with electric i think will be the next big gold rush and uh, we'll start to see those cars uh, appearing by 2025 and uh, every manufacturer i imagine by 2029 2028 2029 will have an offering out there in the marketplace and that has to be our future
1: okay and what about autonomous cars
0: autonomous cars are here uh they're already working i lived in okay. california for the last six years uh, there's certain areas in California like Pasadena where they have already had trial runs of cars going out there um uh, Tesla's and Volvos and whatnot going around picking people up, taking them to restaurants and bars and and taking them back home so they are here um it's up to us at uh, the public to embrace that technology to know uh, whether we have trust and faith in it it's, I have driven an autonomous car I bit or well, not driven it I've been in an autonomous car and uh it's terrifying, you know. It's absolutely pant wettingly. Cr- I'm crapping myself, you know. You're sitting in a car that's been driven. You know, I don't urge anyone to get in their own car and drive down the road and take their hands off the wheel for ten seconds. But if you were, you would, you will crap yourself. Uh, so when you're sitting behind the wheel of a car that's steering itself down the lane and and wandering in between the white lines, it, it's absolutely terrifying. It really is. And I I know it's coming because it's here, but I think it's going to take uh, a shift in people's mentality to accept it and to embrace it. And I think the technology needs to step up another another couple of steps uh, before we will really accept it. It, it. The only way I think it can really work is if everyone is doing it. you know so it's fuzzy logic, so the cars are talking to each other. Uh, the fact that if I'm driving or I'm the passenger and an electric car that's driving down the road, I have no control over the guy on his push bike that's coming towards me in the other direction that's just about to get a puncher. I have no control over that, do I? Um, so, uh, and I don't think the electric car does. Um, so there you go. I, I think it, we're going to have to have everyone being electric and fuzzy logic for it to work.
1: Okay. A couple more things before we go. You have worked with your wife for many years. You told me earlier about her getting sick and septicemia killed my brother-in-law at 47, so I know how serious that is. And you said all you wanted to do was hold her hand. Just just tell me about this relationship you have with this person because, first of all, that people say don't work with your partner. That's the first thing, and you've done that successfully. Um, but you've been by each other's side forever. What kind of a lady is she? Just tell me about her.
0: Well, I'm, I'm so lucky, you know, me and Michelle, uh, we met each other 33 years ago in the car showroom and uh, we are just the best mates. Uh, we're the best mates, we're partners. Uh, she is everything, basically. I can't function without her and I hope she can't function without me. Uh, and we've always, you know, me and Michelle got a relationship where we just share everything. You know, we've got those secrets between us, we share everything uh, and we built us uh, or she's built me as a partnership and uh one doesn't go without the other you know wherever I go michelle's with me and wherever she goes I'm with her and um I'm just so lucky and and I hope that she would say the same that uh, she's so lucky but uh lots of people around us we've got lots and lots of very close friends and and I've got a big family and uh they can see just how how lucky we are to have each other and we uh we We laugh together, we cry together, we might bicker together, but we'll make up together, um but every single moment of my life is planned together uh we don't do anything apart, everything is a joint decision, and uh, uh we'll be we'll be together forever, me and michelle we just can't be parted it's as simple as that we we adore each other, uh simply adore each other and she's she's pretty hot as well my wife she's a good looking lady, you know I'm a very lucky man, but we um Uh, We've been together now 33 years uh, and we were kids when we met, you know, we were kids when we met and and Michelle, uh, we dated for a a while, for a few months and then uh, Michelle uh, come to live with me and uh, we've never spent a day apart unless I have to, you know, unless we we get forced apart because I have to fly off somewhere and, and work, but no, I lived in in the States for six years and Michelle come and live with me in the States and she comes to work with me every day uh, whilst I was there. And uh, we do every, we got events and shows and uh, Michelle has been the backbone of a lot of the production that we've done. So whether it's wheeler dealers or, or trading up where we went around the world or uh, Michelle's in the background of that and pushing the buttons and, and shuffling the paperwork behind and making sure that we are where we should be and, I've got an iron shirt and a full tummy. You know, it's incredible. It's a great relationship.
1: Do you remember where you took her on her first date?
0: I do very well, yeah. Um, So our first date, and uh, this is a good one, I took her to Leicester Square and we went and see Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. uh, (laughs) No, really? (laughs) Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And I just remember sitting in the cinema that moment when um, Steve Martin stabbed himself with a fork in the eye. I just remember that moment and when everyone was wetting themselves in the cinema and, uh, and there I am sitting next to this smoking girl thinking, yeah, this is, this is all right. You know, this is, this is good.
1: It's so nice to see that, that, that you know, you've, you've, you've gone through your life. you Built, built businesses, become successful, become incredibly successful on television. So, so you're in the the eye shot of of the world, and to have that kind of solidified relationship and that loving relationship, and just being able to be there for each other, it means so much. And I think that uh, uh, you know, it's something that I uh, I hope continues in my life as well. Yeah, well done, mate. Do we still love the each other?
0: Walked-
1: oh, is she there? <laughs> oh, the day
0: I walked into your showroom, I changed your life. <laughs> you've had an adventure it's very true yeah in a nutshell i'm always trying to get somewhere stagnate so i want to get somewhere driving mad
1: right so let's let's get on to the last part of the show now i want to talk to you about uh, uh uh the future of wheeler dealers where it's going what the plans are for the future obviously there's been some exciting changes that have happened along the way you've changed the format a little bit um and the dream car thing was really interesting to watch as well. And um, the trading up thing along the way was good. I liked I liked watching that as well. I thought that was really great. You know, I love the way that the guy, go. they'll give you a mini Metro and 500 quid and your face is like, is that it? <laughs> you just <laughs> look at them. <laughs> and, I, and I really feel that in that moment. I'm like, yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's really it. <laughs> but where's it, where's it going? Tell, tell me about what's coming up.
0: Uh, it's really exciting. So we come back uh, from California and uh, uh, Discovery Channel in the UK asked me to come back and make some more Wheel of Dealers in the UK. Uh, they initially commissioned uh, 20 programs, uh, two blocks of 10, uh, and they wanted me to, to work with Elvis, which I was delighted with, because Elvis and me have formed this relationship in Dreamcar, and they wanted to put in the middle another 10 episodes of Dreamcar as well. So that's 30 shows. That's a big commitment uh, for me and Elvis. Uh, so Wheeler dealers is its format, you know, I buy a car, Elvis fix it up, uh, we, we look at every single detail on that car, uh, and then we test drive it and sell it, a uh, dream car, the format of that is uh, I meet somebody that needs a car to change their life, or they, they want their dream car and never going to achieve it, uh, and through a series of trades, me and Elvis help that person, or we trade up to their dream car, so we help that person get the car they've always dreamed of. Uh, so the future of Wheeler Dealers is uh, they they've commissioned that block of thirty shows, um, but we've only got halfway through. Uh, we did half of the Wheeler Dealers ten, currently where we are. We me and Elvis are just finishing off the ten dream cars, and we're just about to embark on the next block of ten Wheeler Dealers. Uh, but already the network uh, know that the show is is their sort of. I don't know what to call it. What is it? It's their crown jewels. Uh, so they've already asked me and Elvis uh, to commit to another 20 wheeler dealers on top of the 20 we're currently making. Uh, so it looks like there's no end to it. And uh, thankfully, because we absolutely love working together, me and Elvis, and uh, we've got this amazing future laid out in front of us. And as soon as that was announced, um, me and Elvis went to a pub, sat down. I pulled out a list of cars. And then we started churning through them again and got very excited about what we could bring to the audience in the future. And uh, it, it, it's, looking, it's looking really, really good. It's looking brilliant.
1: Man, that's just so fantastic. So my, my request is my dream car, which is a Lancia Delta HF Integrale with the martini stripes all over it, which was on my wall when I was a kid um, when rallying was a big thing. My dad used to work for a company called Andrews and they had a sign on the side of their rally cars, heat for hire. And Russell Brooks used to drive uh, an Opel Manta, I think it was with heat for hire down the side. So I had that. And then this Lancia Delta HF Integrale came out and I'm like, holy macaroni, that's the car I want. (laughs) Now I know inside they're not so pretty,
0: but outside they were amazing. It's it's one of my, it's one of my dream cars, you know, a a HF 16 valve Integrale is one of my dream cars. I bought and sold them on TV before. Uh, I've had them on my Trading Up series and on Wheeler Dealers. Uh, I'd love to put another number one in Wheeler Dealers. I think it's it's ready for, for one again now. The problem is the prices are ridiculous of them. They've gone up through the roof. And um, I've, always, I've always said, um, you know, it's the best point-to-point car, I think, ever produced, ever. So from point A to point B, you can't go any quicker than you can do in an Integrale. And there's a reason for that. It's because they sh- stick like shit to a blanket. They, they just, they are just an incredible grippy car. It's very, it's very unusual in the car world to find a car that hurts, you know, and I always love that. And an Integrale is a car that hurts. It hurts to drive it. You're er, er," when you're driving it because it's got so much grip. It hurts. You know, it's a, it's an incredible experience.
1: What a car, what a car. Mike, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to come and join us today on the show. I, it's been truly an absolute joy. I've got one last thing to tell you. I got on a plane yeah. once and I was stood behind you on the air bridge as we were getting on a plane. I was right behind you. We were either flying from London to Dubai, Dubai, London, some, somewhere we were going. And I saw you in front of me. And I'm like, I'm going to go and say hello. And I thought, Why didn't you don't guys because i thought he'd turn around and go don't talk to me wanker because <laughs> you was i i was so starstruck with you in that moment i'm like that's mike brewer <laughs> and i was in my missus and she's like who and i'm like mike brewer mike brewer and she's like yeah but who's he <laughs> and, uh, but um oh, no, just, honestly it, i love it <laughs> i
0: love it when i meet people i really do i've never there'll not be a single person that could listen to this to say If they tap me on the shoulder, you know, wherever it is in a petrol station, supermarket, airport, that I haven't given them as much time as they deserve. So uh, I wish you did, because it would have been you would have been greeted with a smiling face and a lot of chat.
1: Mate, you, you You are an absolute gentleman, a joy. I've met one of my motoring heroes. So thank you so much for coming to join me on the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, the incredible, awesome and wonderful storyteller, Mr. Mike Brewer well what a great episode by a great guy mike funny stories again you can see the car salesman in him but also a world of wisdom and uh the love he has for his wife is something that i really really admire To learn so much about cars is so easy when you watch his show. For it to be on telly for as long as I can remember and always wanting to tune in to see what's the next car that he's going to take and do up it has been an absolute joy for me over the course of the last 20 years. I hope you've enjoyed learning from Mike today and hearing his stories just as much as I have. I can't wait to join you on the next episode of the podcast. But before then, if you are listening to this on iTunes, then please give us a five-star rating. If you're listening on any other podcast platform, then do me a favor, leave some love. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Tell me what I'm doing right. Tell me who you'd like to have as a guest on the show next. It would be so appreciated, you wouldn't believe. I don't forget for one minute how important you, my listeners, are.